Wellie, whatever is that contraption? It is called a nook. Just a moment. You're reading Knight's Plutonian Shore by Jack Mangan. And I have Dust on the Davenport by O.M. Gray queued up next. What a brilliant notion. Tales from the archives, available as Penny Dreadfuls. What? You're quite right, Wellie. Available as 99 Penny Dreadfuls. Hold on. These are still classified documents. Strike up the music. Announcers, if you please. The 99 Penny Dreadfuls. Where did you come from? Steampunk short stories from Phil Rossi, Nathan Lowell, Valerie Guzwald Ford, and many others. Available for 99 cents. How did you get down here? With an orchestra. Visit the Kindle store at Amazon.com, the Nook store at BarnesandNoble.com, or Smashwords.com. Please leave. Or visit the short stories page at ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com. Imagine That Studios and Koru Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 1 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Miss Braun, are you free? It depends, Wally. Is this another lost archive we need to catalogue and file? Ugh. I could use a wee nap in lieu of Ms. another... Miss Braun, please. I believe this lost case file should be your priority for today. Really? All day? Must be a real page-turner. The primary on this case was Harrison Thorne. One of his final missions. In Paris... I thought you would want to give it your full attention. Thank you, Wellington. Well, now, I believe I have something to preoccupy me for the day. Make certain to lock the hatch before you leave. Until tomorrow, Miss Brown. From Paris, with Regret, by Starla Hutchton. March, 1894. 
No matter how many times she saw it, Paris in the spring always astounded her. The gentle scent of the flowering trees eased the twinge of cold still lingering on the March breeze. Of course, it couldn't hold a candle to a New Zealand spring, with the heavy scent of kawaii permeating the air. But, really, what could? Eliza Braun always enjoyed fieldwork in Paris. Its bright lights were a stark contrast to the gloom that often descended over London. This was most noticeable while strolling the Champs-Élysées. Every ten paces, a gaslight illuminated the street below it, casting the bricks in an orange glow. She stopped in front of a store window, admiring a display of the latest trends in Parisian dresses. As she imagined the feel of a silk bodice against her skin, a man's reflection appeared behind her in the glass. Tall, with an immaculately groomed mustache, his blonde hair looked fiery in the streetlight's luminescence. Pardonnez-moi, mademoiselle. His grey-green eyes sparkled playfully. Et vos so? Eliza turned to face him, her smile matching his. Je ne suis pas bleu. He laughed. Question de lait, mademoiselle. Is that how you greet all strange men? Only the good-looking ones, Mr. Thorne. She chuckled and took his arm. They continued down the street, speaking quietly. <laughs> Was your errand a productive one? To an outsider, they would seem as innocuous as any other couple on the streets of Paris, huddled close, arm in arm, lost in their own conversation. Nothing about them seemed out of the ordinary, except perhaps their matched good looks. Not a soul on the street would suspect them as secret agents, sworn to service under the Queen of England and her Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. Eliza gave a throaty, feminine laugh as they passed close to a gentleman walking the opposite direction, keeping up their facade of a lover's tryst. Her partner leaned in close to her ear. The lady in question is hosting a grand masked ball tomorrow evening. It's said that not a single invited guest declined the invitation. Eliza tapped her lip thoughtfully. So either it's as the Ministry suspected, or our Marquise inspires unheard of loyalty. He handed her an envelope. I was able to secure this. When she made to open the wax seal, he stopped her. Patience, Lizzie. Note the impression there. Eliza examined the embossed red blob holding the envelope closed. A crescent moon? Are you very familiar with French history? She shot him a withering look, and he continued. The crescent moon was a favorite symbol of Diane de Poitiers, famous mistress to King Henri II. She adopted many of the Roman goddess Diana's symbols, and posed for several artists depicting her in that divine role. And what exactly is the Marquise de Savoie's connection to this Diane de Poitiers? She handed him back the invitation. He shrugged and tucked the paper into his inner jacket pocket. She claims to be a descendant of some sort, but French royalty were never known for their honesty and paternity claims, so it's difficult to refute or verify. They continued along the Champs-Élysées until they reached the Hotel Crillon, bordering the Place de la Concorde. As they assumed the guise of a wealthy British merchant and his wife, anyone would expect to find them in lavish accommodations like these. As their feet lit upon the mat outside, a glass revolving door began to turn slowly, followed by the hiss of steam. Thanks to the work of Amide Boulet and his steam engine cars, technology was evident at every turn in Paris. 
Apart from the automatic door, the Hotel Crillon boasted a mechanized baggage transport system, access to pneumatic tube message delivery in every room, and its very own ice machine in the hotel bar. The desk clerk greeted them with a cheerful bonne nuit as they traversed the black and white marble tile floor. Everywhere Eliza looked was gilded wood or plush red velvet upholstery. The warmth of the gaslight served only to enhance the atmosphere of privilege. The effect was not lost on her. She did so enjoy fieldwork. When they were within the safety of their grand suite, speculation on the mysterious Marquise de Savoy continued. Any idea as to what we should expect, Harry? She removed her hat pin and hung the touring hat on the coat rack, mindful of the black plumage. Harrison Thorne seated himself in one of the leather lounge chairs in the sweet common area and removed a cigar from the humidor on the coffee table. Dr. Sound said Prince Philippe was very concerned about the circumstances surrounding the murders of certain well-off friends of his. According to their transcript from their Stowe House meeting, he suspects poison and an agenda. He clipped the end of the cigar and struck a match. So why have the Ministry investigate? Sounds more like a job for the Sûreté instead. He puffed on the cigar a few times before answering. It's more the nature of the poisoning. Autopsies revealed no traces of a toxin in their stomach, yet they all shared the symptoms of long-term gold poisoning. Eliza hung her cape below her hat and approached the mahogany bar behind her partner's chair. Long-term? I thought you said the Marquise was a new addition to Paris high society. Randy? Harry let out a puff of smoke. Please. That is the mystery, my dear Lizzie. These symptoms, pale skin and thin golden hair, could not possibly occur within the few hours between when they were last seen alive and when the bodies were found. Excepting the aging Monsieur Beaujolais, who was on his way out at any rate, all four victims were in fine physical health. Yet somehow, their livers contained more gold than the Queen's crown jewels. And the connection between the victims? She set two crystal snifters on the centre table before taking her seat. Harry picked up the glass and swirled the contents around. As far as I've worked out, not much of one, aside from attending one of the Marquis' soirées. These blue bloods are all interrelated, however, no telling how many family members they share. She considered the facts as she sipped her brandy. I believe I'll pay a visit to a friend of mine tomorrow morning. I dare say he'd love a chance to regale me with a bit of historical gossip regarding royal mistresses. What of the Marquesa's maid? Running errands before the affair. I'll intercept her at the seamstress shop. He tossed back the remaining liquid, then stood to refill the glass. She's a waifish thing that would welcome a bit of attention, I dare say. Fancy a hand of cards before you retire. Eliza glanced at the clock on the fireplace mantel. Why, yes, thanks, but this time I get to deal. The dusty courtyard, stretching out before the main entrance to the Louvre, contained scant few visitors. Eliza stifled a yawn as she considered what she was doing awake at this ungodly hour. If she recalled correctly, eight in the morning was the only time of day you could catch Gaston Miguillon, curator of the museum. Since the building didn't open to the public until ten, a mechanized door guard barred the Louvre entrance. She slipped a specially magnetized coin onto its palm, and it granted her passage. The grand atmosphere of the former palace felt slightly diminished by the ticket counter and information leaflets on display, but she paid them little attention. In truth, the paintings and sculptures did not interest her either. She wound her way through the maze of rooms, up to the second floor, 
to the packed office of the curator. At present, Monsieur Miguillon bent over a massive, leather-bound ledger, studying the text. Eliza fought the urge to giggle as she remembered the man's poor eyesight and multi-lensed binocular spectacles. When she had composed herself, she gave a swift rap to the open door. Jumping at the noise, Gaston looked up, his eyes bulging and bug-like behind magnification lenses. After blinking a few times, recognition dawned. Eliza? Eliza, entrez, please do come in. He hopped to his feet and scurried over to her in seconds. Still taken aback by the strange goggles he wore, she allowed herself to be escorted into the room stacked with books, papers, photographs, and oddly shaped boxes. Apologizing the entire time, he cleared the debris from the extra chair in front of his large desk. She sat with a grateful smile. Ah, Eliza. He clapped his hands together after reseating himself. To what do I owe the extreme pleasure of your visit, huh? It has been so long. I thought perhaps I was never to see your lovely face again. He seemed to realize what he was wearing on his face and removed the goggles, replacing them with his regular spectacles. He was a short, pale man, as scholars tended to be, with a thin mustache and eyebrows to match. His dark hair was thinning on top, but he did his best to hide it with an immaculately trimmed haircut, plastered into place with pomade that smelled slightly of sandalwood. She giggled, falling into the girlish role she took with him. He was incredibly easy to win over. <laughs> you flatter me, Monsieur Mignon. How was your trip to Japan? I hear the new collection is coming along nicely. The Japanese prints? Ah, yes, they are most unique. Eh? I am quite sure they will make an impression when they are revealed. Eh? But you did not come here to discuss the latest exhibition, I think. Hmm? Ah, uh, monsieur. She sighed and put on her best sheepish look. You've caught me again. It turns out I'm more curious about French history today than the Far East. Bon, the court, out with it then. He said with a waving flourish of his hand. I need to know about Diane de Poitiers. She hadn't thought it possible, but Gaston Miguillon paled even further at the mention of that name. Diane de Poitiers? <laughs> Whatever do you need that information for? Huh? He stammered as his hands fluttered around his desk, searching for something to occupy them. Eliza's eyes narrowed in suspicion. From your reaction, Monsieur Mignon, I think perhaps you know. He opened his mouth to speak, but seemed to think better of whatever it was he meant to say. His shoulders sank in defeat. You speak at the recent deaths, we? Oui? She nodded, and he continued. I suppose it was a matter of time before someone thought to look here. Although I must admit, I did not expect you personally. Gaston rose from his seat and motioned for her to follow. They traversed half of the museum in silence, down to the first floor, to the southwestern end before stopping. A room of forest green walls housed several glass cases. They stopped in front of the second one to the right, and he unlocked the side panel. Hands still trembling, he reached in to grab a six-inch bronze medallion featuring a dour-faced woman. I am not sure if you would be successful, Mademoiselle Braun, but if anyone could counter Diane de Poitiers, it would be Catherine de Medici. He rattled off quickly. 
Take this. He handed her the medallion, and she slipped it into her handbag, unsure of his intentions. Monsieur? Catherine de Medici, Queen Consort of Henri II, and Diane de Poitiers, his mistress, these women hated each other. When Henri was mortally wounded, the queen banned the mistress from his deathbed despite his calls for Diane. Upon his death, Diane was cast out of the palace, lost claim to the Chateau de Chenoncio, and was ordered to return all of the jewelry she was given by Henri. Come, come. Several months ago, a small collection of jewelry said to be owned by Diane de Poitiers was stolen after we purchased it in an estate auction. We kept it very quiet, as you can imagine. Here is one of the portraits of Madame de Portier. The estate Donnet has requested it for their collection recently, so it is fortunate it is still here for you to view. She made her way over to the portrait on the opposite wall. The woman's features were soft and well-sculpted, and her hair was a lovely reddish gold. Diane de Poitiers had indeed been quite beautiful, and the pearls adorning her neck, dress, ears, and headpiece effused pure class. Her look lacked the proud ostentation of most royal courtiers. This woman did not need the glint of diamonds to enhance what came naturally. If she was ordered to return all her jewellery, how was there any left in the estate? Ordered, yes. Her compliance uh, was questionable. Had the items arrived, perhaps I could have been more certain of authenticity. Eliza turned back to the curator. So... Why give me this medallion? He gulped and shifted nervously from foot to foot. Certain objects within these halls possess qualities, behaviors and deaths surrounding them that I cannot explain. Originally, these two medallions were in the same display. Anytime our staff passed the case, the Poitiers medallion would be lying face down next to the Medici one. It was not until we removed the Medici objects to another room for a temporary exhibit that I suspected what was occurring, as the events ceased. We relocated the Poitiers medallion here, and I'm not that repeated the phenomena. Again, why give me this? Mademoiselle... His eyes darted around and he whispered, Those mysterious deaths I mentioned. Two men confessed on their deathbeds to stealing the missing jewelry, though it was never recovered. Both of them died of the exact same thing. What do you mean, exactly? Gaston Miguel swallowed hard, trying to accept what he was about to say. The portrait of Madame de Poitiers. Their hair and skin were exactly the same as hers. Harry seemed quite pleased with himself when Eliza met up with him that afternoon. Apparently, the waifish thing had shown him a thing or two, along with giving up information. The Marquise would be donning the robes of a peacock for the festivities. With the help of Eliza's contacts and the Paris fashion houses, she was set to replace the hostess as Belle of the Ball, a key move in their plans for the evening. If Harry's reaction was any testament... Her scarlet ibis costume hit the mark. Yards of crimson satin bustled and cascaded from her tightly laced bodice. 
The ministry issued bulletproof corset beneath ensured an almost obscene amount of cleavage was on display, complementing the open shoulders of the dress. No one would suspect the Medici relic slipped down her front, or the knives in her trusty Panamu pistols strapped to her thighs. Eliza's garnet and feather hair ornament concealed several needle-thin darts. The dagger within the handle of her long-beaked red velvet mask was an afterthought, but probably a good one. Even if anyone suspected her armory, they would be far too distracted to give it much thought. Her partner's sidelong glances were difficult to ignore, however. They'd worked side by side for over a year now, and she was still trying to shake her doe-eyed admiration for him. Harrison Thorne was easily one of the best, if not the best agent in the ministry at present. Add that to his striking good looks, and she would be hard-pressed to deny him anything. Not that she would ever tell him that. Thankfully, they arrived at the destination before she could dwell on it any further. The evening's festivities were taking place at the Marquise's grand home around the corner from La Madeleine Church at the northern end of Place de la Concorde. As planned, they made their appearance fashionably late. This was sure to draw the Marquise's notice. Add to the equation Eliza's bid for the best dressed of the evening, and she would be impossible to ignore. All Eliza needed to do was occupy the woman while Harry searched her rooms for the object she was using to kill. It was likely one of the stolen items mentioned by Monsieur Miguillon were behind the whole mess. The difficulty was in narrowing down the possibilities any further. The pilfered articles were accessories of some kind. Rings, earrings, necklaces, a brooch or two. If it wasn't obvious which of these it was, Harry would simply take the lot and the ministry could sort it out later. To be safe, they'd decided to eat or drink nothing during the course of the ball. For the sake of appearances, they would carry the occasional glass of wine or champagne if offered. Clearly, the victims had all been poisoned. Indirect as the exposure might be, they couldn't afford to take any chances. They strode into the ballroom right as the Marquise stood to make a speech. Her first words were confident and haughty, until she caught sight of Eliza. She stammered as heads whirled in the direction of the vermilion-wrapped newcomer. Whatever she'd wanted to say was drowned out by the comments of surprise, jealousy, and admiration passing between attendees. Eliza hid her satisfied smile behind her mask. The first step in their plan worked perfectly. Getting close to the Marquise was more of a challenge. While she attracted the target's attention, she had also attracted the attention of everyone else in the ballroom. As a result, so many people wanted a word, or a dance, getting close to the hostess was proving impossible. The break came when the woman took it upon herself to approach Eliza. Harry, seeing his moment at last, quietly excused himself. At last I catch you alone, madame. The Marquise, a plain-faced, rather stout woman, said with a hidden touch of irritation. Ah, yes, the Marquise de Savoie. Such a pleasure, Mrs. Moira Templeton. My husband, Zachary, works in imports and exports for one of the largest transportation companies in England. She gave a grand flourish of her hand and waited for the woman to seem impressed. After a moment of cool regard, she nodded her head. Ah, si. Are you in Paris for long? 
Eliza gave a non-committal shrug. Until my husband's business is complete. Could be tomorrow, could be next week. One can never be certain. Quite so. The Marquise gave her a saccharine smile. Well, I do hope to see you again, in any case. Now, if you do not mind, I must see to my other guests. With a toss of her head, she set off to speak with another group of the socially elite. As she did so, the light hit the earrings the Marquise wore. Pearl drops in a gold and diamond setting. She stared. Would this French tart really be arrogant enough to wear stolen jewelry in public? The more she studied the earrings, the more she was certain of it. They were clearly the earrings from the portrait of Diane de Poitiers. The slippery Marquise was halfway to the back of the room before Eliza could stall her. She caught Harry's eye as he emerged from a side room, motioning to her ears. They were going to lose her if they didn't act now. They felt the explosion just before they heard it. Glass from the windows shattered with the force of the blast and guests ran, screaming in all directions. The floor shook and chunks of ceiling crashed around them. A gas light fixture exploded into flame, spewing crystal and metal shrapnel in all directions. Eliza caught sight of Harry across the room as he dashed after the escaping peacock. The maid stood on the upper floor balcony, shock rooting her to the spot. Before she could make a move, the crowd swept Eliza down the stairs and out of the building. All she could think was how inconsiderate it was not to be consulted when black powder was in play. The partygoers poured onto the sidewalk, simultaneously choking on the smoke from the explosion and trying to see what had happened rather than paying attention to where they were going. Eliza pushed her way through the crush of people. Her dress was a considerable hindrance during pursuit. With an irritated curse, she realized she was on the wrong side of the building. The swarm pushed her out the main entrance while the hostess slipped out the back. Cutting through a courtyard, then an alley, Eliza cleared the smoke from the explosion and caught up to her partner. Their quarry was stopped in the middle of the road, glaring at someone. Keeping to the shadows, Eliza managed to catch a glimpse of Harry as he pulled back the hammer on his derringer. Under cover of darkness, she removed the Punamu pistols from their thigh holsters. I suggest you hand over those earrings immediately. Harry leveled his weapon at the Marquise. Oh, what? She laughed at him. What will you do? My home is in flames, my reputation obliterated. What more can you do to me? Shoot me? Monsieur, I assure you, it would be welcome. These earrings... She trailed off, her voice choking up a little. These earrings are my only link to the heritage I deserve. Eliza paused. Her only link? What of the other items that had been stolen? Likely they were sold to pay for the expensive illusion of wealth. She felt sorry for the Marquise. It was probably the truth that the woman had nothing left save for that one piece of jewelry. After lying to the entirety of Parisian society, where could you go? London wouldn't have her. Neither would the Italians, regardless of her claimed heritage. After the lush lifestyle she'd achieved, could she survive the only professions possibly left to her? Before Eliza could answer her own rhetorical question, Sophie de Savoy began to shake and cough violently. The light from the gas lamp skewed the perception of color, but the Marquise's dark hair appeared to be changing. 
Her skin lost its rosy glow, a pallor coming over her plain face. As she sank to her knees, clutching her stomach, the golden gleam of her locks caught the light. Harry reached the woman before Eliza. He turned her over to hear her whispering, Mais c'est impossible. He looked to Eliza, who was just as baffled. Then who? The question hung unfinished as Sophie choked out one last breath. She stared up at the hazy sky, unblinking. With a frustrated sigh, Harry closed her eyelids and stood. Alas, the poor Marquise, she did love being the center of attention, no? <laughs> A mocking laugh carried from the shadows behind them. She should have stayed in Dre, as I told her to. Maintenant, she had to be the toast of Paris. That desire was the closest resemblance to Diane de Poitiers she ever had. She emerged onto the street and spit on the ground. Good evening, Mademoiselle Helene. Harry addressed the maid with a bow, but did not take his eyes from her. Am I to understand this is your handiwork? Of course it is. I am insulted. She turned up her nose. As if this maldestre idiota could organize a simple dinner, let alone mastermind a coup of French high society. Eliza gave a start. That was an Italian insult, not a French one. My mistake, signora. Harry heard it too. Perhaps you would educate me. She laughed, and it sounded deeper, older than what it should have been coming from a housemaid in her twenties. She was careless, flaunting those stolen earrings of hers. We were going to be caught. I will not go to prison for the acts of a foolish girl. So it's not the earrings, then? Eliza whispered to Harry. She would think that the Butana had any abilities beyond the bedroom. Helen cackled. Her interests were far more mundane than that. Oh no, in true Medici fashion, it is I who controls everything. Her laughter turned maniacal. Eliza grimaced. Why must they always squawk so when they've been caught? Harry sighed and readied his weapon. No idea, Lizzie. This looks like it's about to get a bit prickly, however. Stay sharp. When she looked back to the maid, she was still howling hysterically, but a violent wind blew up around her now, and her eyes blazed with an unholy yellow light. The woman clutched something in her right hand. Whatever was causing this was clenched in those unyielding fingers. Oh, what Eliza wouldn't have given for a stick of dynamite about then. Incendiary devices were cure-alls for tricky situations. Helene took a step towards them, then another. For lack of any other alternative, Harry raised his weapon and fired. The bullet deflected off an unseen barrier and struck the building behind the possessed woman. Well, that's unfortunate, isn't it? Harry backed up a pace. Helene advanced. Dearest Zachary, did I mean so little to you? She sneered. Ah, but if that is how it must be... Her voice trailed off as a faint light pulsed from her closed fist. Harry doubled over in a sudden fit of retching, the symptoms of poisoning immediately visible on his countenance. Panic threatened to overwhelm Eliza. Bullets were of no use, and she was completely without explosives. 
Surely there had to be something. Unsure if it was even useful in this situation, Eliza reached down the front of her dress and produced the Medici medallion. She held it out in front of her, facing the oncoming entity. The maid paused, cocking her head to one side. You wish to show fealty to me? Very well. Perhaps I shall spare your life. You may bow. That's not entirely what I had in mind, your grace. Eliza winked at her. One side, Harry dear. A colleague in the Far East taught her a trick with pointed throwing stars. A clever technique Eliza now applied to the medallion as she flung it at Helene. The heavy bronze disc struck the maid's hand. The woman screeched in pain, but released the object she'd been clinging to. The moment it dropped, she crumbled to the brick-paved street. I say, Lizzie. Cracking shot. Harry sputtered as Eliza bent to check his condition, the spell broken. He seemed to be recovering quickly. She approached the motionless woman to retrieve the artifacts, lest their enemy revive to attack again. Near to where Helen fell, a small silver spoon lay, unassuming and benign. Using the hem of her skirt to touch it, she picked it up and tucked it into a hidden pocket within the folds of material of her skirt. Gathering the medallion as well, she cringed to see the reverse of it severely scratched. Gaston would be most displeased. Lastly, she examined Helene. Absent a pulse and any signs of breathing, there was nothing Eliza could do for her. Is she? Harry asked while attempting to stand. She shook her head. No longer with us, he sighed. I think perhaps she was gone the moment she touched that artifact. Catherine de Michi never did like to share. The lights from the city glittered on the water. Eliza brushed a stray smear of soot from her arm and gazed over the boat railing. With the mission complete, all save for the hideous paperwork Dr. Sound would expect on their return, a night cruise on the Seine seemed just the thing to round out the evening. They had champagne, but I thought perhaps something a bit stronger to celebrate our triumph. Harry handed her a glass filled halfway with an amber liquid. She sniffed it. Cognac, and a good one, too. Why, Mr. Thorne, are you trying to get me drunk? She grinned at him and sipped the drink. He feigned a hurt look. Dearest Lizzie, I would never be so foolish as to presume one drink would put so much as a dent in your outstanding tolerance. Then you are a smart man, indeed. <laughs> she laughed, returning the glass to her lips. They were silent for a while each contemplating the recent events in their own way. Harry. Eliza tapped a finger on the railing. Did you plant that bomb without telling me? He barked out a laugh. I was wondering if you were going to ask about that. No, Lizzie, I did not. The blast came from La Madeleine. I overheard something about anarchists on our way out, but it was neither here nor there. A complete coincidence, really. And the spoon? She patted her pocket. A bit hard to say just now. He shrugged. The Medicis were infamous poisoners. 
It's entirely possible that was one of the old lady's tools of the trade. She was a wily bint, that's certain. The gold poisoning was quite the poetic touch. He smirked, as though admiring the brilliance of it, but it quickly faded. Perhaps I should hold on to that trinket for now, hmm? It seems to have quite the effect on women. Eliza laughed lightly. <laughs> Why, Harry, don't you trust me? Implicitly. His reassuring smile made her knees weak. It is the deceased Queen of France I have doubts about. He set his glass on a nearby table and held out his hand. She snatched the silk handkerchief out of his breast pocket with a wicked grin. After wrapping it around her fingers, she reached into the small hideaway in her skirt and produced the spoon. Concealing it beneath the fabric, she placed the item onto Harry's upturned palm and met his gaze. A small gasp caught in her throat as his eyes locked onto hers, the warm glow of desire smoldering within them. Eliza's hand lingered on his, and her heart pounded. Harry's fingers enveloped her own, the cloth-wrapped artifact the only barrier between their touch. He pulled her hand to his chest, bringing her still closer to him. The heat between their bodies sent a flush through her exposed skin. She pressed against him as his arms slipped around her waist, and her thoughts raced as his lips parted ever so slightly. He released her hand, running the back of his fingers across her cheek, down her neck, and over her bare shoulder caused a shiver to pass through her. She closed her eyes. Harry was so close she could feel the warmth of his breath against her mouth when unwelcome thoughts of other women in missions past flashed in her mind. How many lips had kissed his? So, am I to be like Helene, Gertrude, and who was that Mark in Budapest? She whispered, backing away slightly. Ivanova. Am I to be another in a long line of... Lizzie, that was for queen and country. This is... different. He leaned in again. It was a line she was sure he'd said before, and it rang hollow in her ears. A stolen glance up at him revealed a twinge of guilt. As much as she ached to believe him, the memory of Helene's Did I mean so little to you? haunted her. Eliza couldn't live with herself if she became one of his passing fancies. Not when they were partners and relied on each other so heavily. That situation would be impossible to work in. Eliza pushed back and turned away. It would be better this way, wouldn't it? She desperately wanted to give in to temptation, as strongly as her body begged for the contact, but she saw no good end to the situation. She studied him out of the corner of her eye. A mix of emotions passed over his face. He looked stunned, confused, hurt, and, finally, accepting. Within a heartbeat, all readable reactions vanished, and he returned his attention to the river. The moment was gone, lost to her forever. Damn logic, and damn her good sense. She downed the rest of the cognac, enjoying the burn creeping down her throat. As the Eiffel Tower came into view, Eliza Braun closed her eyes. The details of the last few seconds etched themselves into her permanent memory. She would never be able to erase this night, 
nor the heartache she already felt at its passing. Starla Hutchton, one of the new voices of podcasting, released her first novel, The Dreamer's Thread, as a full cast production beginning in August 2009. Her first foray into podcasting went on to become a finalist for the 2010 Parsec Awards. Since her debut, Starla's voice has happened in other podcasts, including Vina Blute, Gypsy Audio's Stargazers, Tales of the Scorned Lady, and Erotica a la carte. Her writing has also appeared in Erotica a la carte podcast and the Farago anthology. Starla's artistic endeavors continue into music, as her dulcet tones have provided sweet crooning for various podcasts produced by Alex White, Karu Studios, and Imagine That Studios. From Monterey, California, Starla pursues a degree in graphic design, while gearing up for her next podcast project, Antigone's Wrath. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of Phoenix Rising, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favourite bookstore or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com or the iBookstore. Original music composed by Alex White. Find out more at TheGearHeart.com. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. Morris with this outrageous French accent.